0: Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Chibukcha. I'm a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Colleen Clark. Welcome, Colleen.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Colleen Clark is a senior fellow um, at the Sufan Center. He is also the director of research at the Sufan Group. His research focuses on domestic and transnational terrorism, international security and geopolitics, Prior to joining the Sufan Group, Dr. Clark was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a senior political scientist at Durant Corporation. Uh, Dr. Clark has published numerous articles and books on terrorism, insurgency, and international security, including his most, most recent book, After the Caliphate, the Islamic State, and the Future of Terrorist Diaspora, uh, which is one of my favorite books in my library.
1: It's very kind of you to say.
0: Um, Colin, so I want to start our conversation um, about Ukraine, especially around foreign fighters and mercenaries. In the early days of the Russian invasion, Ukrainian President Zelensky announced the creation of international legion and called for foreign volunteers to join Ukrainian armed forces. And they launched a website for enlisting for volunteer fighters. So recently, the Ukrainian authorities reported that some. 20,000 people from 52 countries have applied to join the Legion, and we see a considerable amount of Americans show interest in Zelensky's call and join the fight. So who are these Americans? Are, are there any specific patterns of background, ideology, and demographics?
1: Well, you're right. From what we know, it's, it's actually a mixed bag. We've got some actual veterans of the armed forces uh, individuals that were uh, Marines and uh, soldiers in the Army. We've got some what I would call adventure seekers, which is not uncommon, people with no combat experience, no military experience uh, that are, uh, you know, inspired by President Zelensky, as many people are, and uh, are looking to contribute. And this is their way of doing that, is through uh, volunteering to go fight for the Ukrainians. And then you've got, you know, we've seen some, um, reporting on folks that I would, uh, I would say are ideologically motivated. So members of the so-called boogaloo movement here in the United (laughs) States, which can be, you know, most commonly associated with far right extremists showing up there. Uh, you know, this is a different generation. This is 2022. And so some of (laughs) these people are going over there and I call them Instagram tourists, right. They're, they're going there to take some selfies, uh, in Ukraine and, and, They have no idea what to expect, and they're totally unprepared for what they're getting into.
0: Yeah, so you made a great point. Um, They are passionate, they are dedicated, and kind of um, seeking some adventure. I mean, however, to what extent did the conditions in Ukraine let them contribute to the combat power? Uh, What type of organizational, logistical, and operational challenges are waiting for them?
1: Well, uh, challenges is the right word. I think a host of challenges await uh, these individuals. You know, unless you have significant combat experience, you've been through military training, it's going to be difficult to adapt to the battlefield there. Even if you have military experience, you may not have been in combat like uh, the Ukrainians are experiencing right now. Um, So I I think significant challenges, uh, which foreign fighters typically experience, from what I've heard, and I'm in touch with people that are in Ukraine right now, that are in Poland, that are you know, observing a lot of what's happening, it's fairly chaotic, the process, which is not uncommon at all. We're four weeks into this conflict, and so that's par for the course. In fact, um, this effort seems more coordinated than prior uh, mobilizations of foreign fighters. And I think part of that's because you know uh, the Ukrainians have asked folks to register through their embassies. Uh, through the Ukrainian embassy in their respective countries, so there's at least some effort to collect data and to vet people. But look, war is war is chaotic by its very nature, and so uh, you know the 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 experience that these folks are stepping into, I think, uh, you, you know, is um, unstable at best.
0: Okay, uh, so how possible for the Ukrainian government to command and control these foreign fighters? coming from different countries, speaking different languages?
1: Uh, very hard. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. Um, and we've already seen individuals complaining that, you know, that they lack the equipment or the uh, ammunition or the weaponry to go into combat. Again, think about the background. Some of these people, they they're, you know, their closest experience to conflict may very well be a video game. And so they show up on the Polish Ukrainian border thinking they're going to be uh, outfitted like Rambo or RoboCop and they're given whatever is there, particularly if they don't have uh, military background, you know, they may be looked at more like cannon fodder. And so uh, I think everyone wants to go there and be heroic and shoot a javelin, right. That's the, mm-hmm. you know, the weapon that resonates with most people from this conflict. And that's just not, you know, the U- Ukrainians are a trained and, and clearly very fierce military uh, mm-hmm. that. that that fighting is going to be left to the professionals, as it should be.
0: Okay, so we see a lot of interest, even there is a kind of amateur uh, intentions behind it. But to what extent can the participation of Korean fighters make a difference in the overall dynamic of the war?
1: I think at this point, I almost look at it as more of a morale boost or a public relations effort Mm -hmm. to say, look, there's universal buy-in. Look at the, you know, people that have come from 52 different nations to support Ukraine against the evil Russians. And a lot of that's true. I mean, the the optics, I think, you know, reflect that. So, you know, how much are they force multipliers on the battlefield? Well, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. You know, there'll probably be a couple of anecdotes that come out about the brave, you know, Swede or Australian, or, you know, some hero that emerges on the battlefield, but that's not going to be, you know, a common trend that's probably going to be, you know, more likely an out uh, an outlier.
0: Okay, so if you go back to like 1980s, the Soviet uh, invasion of Afghanistan, and in case of the foreign fighters fighting there, and it actually seeded thousands of jihadists in many countries and played a critical role in forming several insurgent groups and terrorist organizations, including al-Qaeda. We also observed that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has mobilized far right militia leaders by raising funds, recruiting fighters, and planning travel to the front lines. So in the long dr- in the long run, how likely does this mobilization backfire in terms of radicalization and extremism?
1: Well, you hit the nail on the head. There's going to certainly be second and third order effects that flow from the current mobilization that we're seeing. And many, if not most, governments are going to be unprepared for that. Uh, They're not going to be able to absorb people that are trying to reintegrate into society that may may have post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that may have seen or engaged themselves in pretty violent activities and have trouble reintegrating into quote unquote normal life. Uh, I think you know you may very well have extremists that are deliberately seeking out Ukraine to gain combat experience to only return home and. Uh, use that combat experience as street cred, right? I went there, I talked the talk, I walked the walk, and that helps them recruit, (laughs) that helps them fundraise, that makes their propaganda resonate. Look, there's a lot of differences between what we saw with Syria and Ukraine, but there's a lot of similarities in terms of what motivates people to leave (laughs) their countries of origin, to go fight, why they do it, and then what they hope to gain from that experience and bring back to either their host nation country or a third-party country.
0: Okay, great, thank you. Um, and there are mixed messages from the countries. Like some officials from Canada, UK have encouraged their citizens to join the Ukrainian army. On the other, on the other side, Czech Republic has passed legislation that makes joining another state's armed forces illegal. And other countries like Germany have warned that if any of its nationals who join the war in Ukraine violate international law, and they will be prosecuted. So, to what extent should the governments permit volunteer? fighters to join the fight in Ukraine, especially if you look at the United States.
1: You raise another great point. It's certainly been mixed messaging, and I think that's probably being mm-hmm. kind. Uh, it's been a, a, kind of like the process itself, chaotic. Uh, Liz Truss from the UK had kind of come out early on and encouraged it. Several other uh, government, you know, high-ranking government and, uh, officials and policymakers did as well, without, I think, thinking through uh, the potential backlash there. Uh, including the fact that, as you mentioned, in countries like Czech Republic and elsewhere, it's illegal to go and join the armed forces. And I think uh, not only are the citizens that are joining unaware of this, but the people encouraging them to go do it Mm -hmm. are also likely unaware. So, you know, I wrote a piece in Politico a few weeks ago with uh, Noreen uh, Chowdhury-Fink, who's the executive director at the Sufan Center. And we essentially said as much, which was, you know, there's a lot of things that people aren't thinking about right now. And those things could come back and, and very well, you know, serve as a form of blowback for, you know, European countries that are trying to do the right thing, but have delivered the message in probably the wrong way.
0: Okay. So on the other side, Russia announced that more than 16,000 people, it's mainly from the Middle East, like Syria, have appealed to join their fight in Ukraine. So Ukraine turns out to be a center of gravity for foreign fighters and mercenaries. Do you think to what extent the internationalized context of the war can lead Ukraine to be a battleground for a prolonged proxy warfare?
1: Yeah, well, I'll say two things. I haven't seen these Syrians and, you know, those Mm -hmm. from the Central African Republic actually show up in Ukraine. Uh, So at this point, to me, it's still very much kind of uh, propaganda, information operations, PR, uh, unless they're there and I haven't seen it yet, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, as of, Uh, March 23rd, the date of our conversation, I haven't seen large numbers of Syrians or any Syrians at all, frankly, showing up and fighting in Ukraine. Um, You know, to what extent are they even really going to be force multipliers versus the same thing on the Ukrainian side? Right. Is this more about saying, look, we have universal buy in. We have our partners in the Middle East. Um, We've seen some propaganda coming out of the Central African Republic where we know the Russians maintain a military presence through the Wagner group. Uh, you know, pledging support for Russia, but it's foolhardy to think you're going to take fighters out of Africa or the Middle East, send them to a foreign land where they don't speak the language, they're unfamiliar with the terrain, the weather, the style of combat, and think they're going to be successful. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a lot of bark with with little bite at this point. That could change. Uh, yeah, From what I'm seeing now, uh, I'm not totally sold that this is a, a game changer.
0: Uh, Thank you, Colin. These are all my questions today. And thank you so much for your great responses to my um, lengthy questions. Um, Thanks so much. Appreciate it.